I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty-gritty, so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... David Hahn, the Radioactive Boy Scout, Part 2. Who was David Hahn? Well, he was a young boy who, growing up in the late 1980s, struggled in school and didn't seem to have any adults in his life who cared about him other than his adoring mother. After her life was forever changed by mental illness, David withdrew from the world and became obsessed with one thing, chemistry. He would spend the next decade of his life monastically dedicating himself to the craft of chemistry, teaching himself everything he could learn about the subject and conducting thousands of extremely dangerous experiments in his various homemade laboratories. Eventually, after joining the Boy Scouts and learning about nuclear power while pursuing his Atomic Energy Merit Badge, he decided at 17 years old that he was going to build a working nuclear reactor in his backyard potting shed. The craziest thing? He actually kind of did it. Happiness is a warm neutron gun. So how does one become an Eagle Scout? Only 2% of Boy Scouts ever make it that far, and it's accomplished through a rigorous series of trials. You have to earn 21 total merit badges from a possible 100 different topics. 11 of the badges are mandatory subjects such as family living, citizenship, and survival skills. The other 10 can be any subject the Scout chooses. And do you want to guess one of the badges that David chose? Atomic Energy. His pursuit of this badge would not only deepen his passion for the subject, but would also equip him with many more skills and a lot more knowledge to do even more destructive and dangerous things. David had always been fascinated by nuclear energy as a subject, a pipe dream, the romantic idea of one day following in the footsteps of Marie and Pierre Curie. But it wasn't until he started earning his Atomic Energy Merit Badge that he actually learned ways that he could start gaining access to radioactive materials and conduct experiments on them here and now. During this time, one of his scoutmasters taught him how to use a Geiger counter and showed him where to find and how to harvest trace amounts of radioactive material from the numbers on vintage clocks, which used to be painted with radium so they'd glow in the dark. It was during this time that he developed a new goal in life. He was going to collect every single element on the periodic table. Yep, in the 90s, while other kids were trying to catch all 151 Pokemon, editors note, I think this happened a few years before Pokemon even existed, but I couldn't resist making this joke. David was literally trying to catch them all, where the all was a collection of the most deadly substances known to man. Couple things about this. So this is something that kind of fascinates me about David Hahn's obsession. It gets more pointed towards the end as he starts to later on, as we'll get to, that he wants to build a nuclear reactor for reasons. Uh, but early on in, in his obsession, I find it very fascinating that his his obsession was so like it was so holistic and almost like I don't know what the right term is like it was this generic obsession. Like in the beginning, he wasn't he didn't want to build a nuclear reactor. He didn't want to pursue any kind of specific goal. He just wanted to like know everything there was to know generically or broadly about chemistry to the point where, as we talked about in the last episode, he would like just go through the halls of Kroger's and just like memorize the the chemical ingredients of different products so that he just kind of had like a, a general knowledge of what types of chemicals was in everything. And then 
his next goal became that he just wanted to collect every single element on the periodic table, just broadly. He just wanted to have them, not for any reason. He just wanted to own them, which is which is very fascinating to me. It's it's not it's not like an obsession with like it differentiates itself from something like Henry Darger, where he had this obsession with like this story or like building out this specific book and the world within it um, or like Andrew WK trying to make some kind of commentary on the music industry and the sort of like fakeness of it and the way that pop stars are like manufactured. It was just like, I just want to have all of the elements. Yeah. It, uh, to me, it, it's very lonely. Like it kind of makes sense on this, you know, introverted, isolated kid front because, you know, when you develop, you develop your sense of taste by bouncing off of people and discussing things and you you hone your perspective by hearing other people's perspective and being like, oh, I agree with that or oh, I don't agree with that. And so the more you kind of consume of something and then are forced to um, kind of interpolate it and, and interact with other people who also know a lot about it, your knowledge sharpens itself based on who you're around. And the idea that he doesn't have an actual end goal or doesn't have a real, like, sustainable drive other than to just generally do chemistry is really sad. Like, it, because it, it's not sad in like, oh, he's so directionless, he doesn't even know what he wants. It's sad and it's like, oh, you didn't have anybody to share this with. There's nobody to really, like, to to, you know, iron sharpens iron or whatever, you know. Yeah, and that's a, that's actually a good way of putting it. What you said just a second ago, that his interest or his obsession never sharpened itself. Like that's a perfect way of putting it because that really is what it is. Because you start to develop these interests or these hobbies or these things that you want to learn or whatever it is. Eventually, those are shaped by relationships and people giving you ideas and discovering sort of like the 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 nuances of the human condition where you're like oh like i now notice this one specific thing and this 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 thing that i'm interested in i can go down this very specific path now because of that like for instance my my stepdad um who worked in like the restaurant business as a waiter for most of his like early career whenever i was growing up and then he had a bad back injury uh, where he was confined to a wheelchair and then eventually crutches for a long time. He had a crushed disc. Um, this was back in the 90s. Um, and the, 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 the problem still persists. He actually just had to have like a big surgery like last year for it. But there was a while where he just like couldn't move. And he had to be in physical therapy. And during the physical therapy, he just like real he just like thought like oh i want to do this i want to like help people like this and then he became a physical therapist um and that's and, and like like you said there was nothing like that for david he had nothing to bounce off of which was kind of a term that i used early on but sharpening is a is a pretty is i think i like that idea of it better even if it's just kind of like you know when i was in high school or whatever like i was the artsy dork right like i was the one who was into weird underground movies and bands nobody had heard of and artists that never made any real dent in society and i wanted i like in theory wanted to make comics but i didn't know actually how to do that 
And it took somebody to be like, hey, you know that there's a whole department, right? Like, you know that there's like an illustration department where you go and you study the craft of illustration and, and drawing, right? You know that like studio art and painting is a different thing. And I was like, oh, I just thought you went to school and like studied art as a concept. I don't I don't know what I thought because I was a fucking kid. I was just like, I don't know. Can we talk about Spider-Man now? <laughs> <laughs> not literally that was a joke not literally but you know like you know henry darger is somebody i was into and like he never had anything to really bounce off of either other than severe mental illness and a complete lack of social safety net but i think those two things for him dovetailed in, into like an extreme level of sharpening where david hahn his mental illness or obsession or whatever you want to call it, just it never manifested in that specific way. Or maybe it did. Maybe it did. Maybe it did. Well, you know, we'll get there. Yeah, just just for years it didn't, which I even if it starts to take go off in an, another direction later on, it's fascinating that from the age of 14 until like 17, it didn't. It was just like his obsession never like matured. Um, and the other thing uh, that I wanted to bring up just briefly was is that like this thing that they're talking about with the extracting um, radium from the paint that's used to that was used to paint the numbers on clocks back in, you know, prior to the 1960s. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with this concept or this thing, but basically uh, back pre 19 late 1950s, 1960s. Uh, we knew nothing about uh, like the effect, the long-term effects of radiation on the human body. We kind of started to know in the 50s, but even then it was totally unregulated and there was just a lot of misinformation about it. And so prior to that time, uh, it was just used in all these different ways. Like, like you would you used to go back in like the, back in the 40s and 50s, and I think up until even the 70s, if you went into a shoe store, um, you know how they have those little things where you put your little foot in that little stirrup thing and then you shut it and it like shows you what size your foot is. In shoe stores, they literally used to have these machines where you walked up to it and you stuck your foot into it and then it it did an x-ray of your foot to show you the literal ins. Like it was like it was the most over engineered thing possible because you could just take that little stirrup thing and like size it. It's like a little caliper and you size it to your foot. But back in the forties, they were fucking like showing you an x-ray so that you could see your foot through your shoe and then like see like where it was coming up to the tip of your shoe so that you could gauge it and be like, Oh, my shoe size is this. And you were just blasting fucking radiation at your foot just to see what size your foot was. And the other thing that they did was to make the numbers on clocks glow in the dark so you could see what time it was, painted them with radium because radium glows. And so back in the 30s and 40s, because of world, uh, the war and other things that were going on, there was these women which were became known as the radium girls. And they would paint, they were, they were painters and they would paint the numbers on these clocks. And they would because of the way that painters will like lick the tip of their brush to like sharpen it, uh, make the point finer. 
And also because they just had no idea. So they would like take the paint and they would like paint their fingernails with it. And they would like sometimes they would paint their teeth with it so they could like freak people out. They would like go home and like scare their kids by turning the lights off and showing their glowing teeth or whatever. All of these women just got cancer and died. And like and it wasn't just cancer. It was like they're fucking because the thing that radium, the thing that radiation does in the human body is it just punches holes in your in your bones. So your bones like literally just melt whenever you have radiation poisoning. So all these women just died in horrific ways. And it was used as the basis for people to start understanding the deadly effects of of radiation on the body, like the specifically the radium girls uh, as that they tried to cover it up when these, when these women started dying, they tried to cover it up because they didn't want people to think that radiation or they didn't want think people think that radium was, was deadly and because it was in all these products and stuff. And then it finally got out and then it shaped the way that we understand the deadly effects of, of radiation on the human body. And now it's like, you don't go near that stuff unless you're in like a protective lead suit. But back in the day, they just sold it in bottles and they said, like, drink this to live forever. Make your insides glow. Have your poop glow. It'll be fun. Yeah, literally. And there was like there was like rich people who would buy it because it was like super expensive and they would drink it because it was supposed to make them like live longer. And then they would just die horrible deaths. David even told his scoutmaster helping him with his merit badge about his plan to collect all of the elements on the periodic table. But like every other adult in his life, he didn't take him seriously. He thought he'd mess around with trying to collect some of the more common and harmless elements, lose interest, and move on. Similar to his scoutmaster, David had also confided in his favorite high school chemistry teacher, Sue Young, that he planned on collecting all the elements. But she also didn't take him seriously. That was until one day, during an open house event at the school. David's father, Ken, visited Sue Young carrying a small paper bag. He approached the chemistry teacher, opened up the bag, and produced a small jar of oil with some kind of white, waxy substance floating in it. He told her that he found it in David's room and wanted to know what it was. Young was horrified to realize that it was a chunk of pure sodium, one of the most dangerous elements, a substance that, when exposed to air or water, would explode. It can only be contained in a stable state if suspended in oil, and it was only by sheer miracle that Ken or Kathy hadn't thought to open the jar and take the sodium out upon discovering it. Young was speechless. David had actually followed through with his wild plan to try and collect all the elements, and he could have killed himself, his entire family, and his whole classroom full of parents and students in the process. And how the hell did he even get it? So up until this point, like, David's been doing it dangerous experiments that often involve explosions, but it's like, it's explosions that, like, if you're standing in a room and you mix a chemical, there's an explosion and it, like, blows you back and, like, maybe singes your eyebrows or something like that, which is, like, I'm not trying to do that. But it's, like, relatively non-deadly. It's, like, little chemical reactions or whatever. But David gets a hold of a chunk of sodium that if it was exposed to air at any point, it would just, like, blow up the room and spaghettify you and it's just it's just like in his room i i i it's i want to have empathy for him and be like he's so industrious no one cares about him he's like you know he's like obviously an overlooked underappreciated you know budding genius but that just that's so hard for me to not be like you're actively like not trying to murder people, but you're 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 like really putting people and yourself in harm's way for no reason. Like how how is 
how are, how are you like are you a monster like what is this i don't understand it yeah the to a certain point up to a certain point the fact that he's like 15 or 16 at this point and has is a, is a kid stops making sense or justifying it cuz even a kid at that age especially with the advanced level of understanding of the chemistry that he had cuz if it was a kid that didn't know anything about it it would be more understandable if they had no idea that sodium could do that, then it's like, yeah, that makes sense why you would be doing something so dangerous. But especially with the advanced knowledge of exactly what it does, it stops making sense or justifying it that he's like 15 because it's like you should still be like, I'm going to fucking die. And then also the fact that like Ken took this to school and showed his teacher and she was like, this is fucking sodium, bro. Like you're you're going to die. And they moving forward from this david still just continues to do these things and still his parents his dad just like let him keep doing it like if if like i find it very it's like what like we talked about this last episode but this idea of like i want to know the specifics of what was said during these little stories that we're looking at because if i found out that somebody my son or whoever was keeping sodium in our house like hiding it and i knew the consequences of what sodium could do. Like, I'm not letting that go. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, what else do you have? Show me, show me every inch of your room, please. It's not even that you're in trouble or that I'm mad. It's that I don't want to die. Yeah. And I don't want you to die. And obviously you don't have, or yeah, you know, any, I, I don't want all of us to die. Well, David came up with a very interesting way of attaining the sodium, as well as many other of the dangerous, often illegal-to-own compounds and chemicals that he would amass over the next few years in his pursuit of collecting everything on the periodic table. He came up with the extremely discreet alter ego of Professor David Hahn, a Detroit high school chemistry teacher who would write letters to government departments, colleges, and chemical companies asking to be sent materials so that he could demonstrate them to his classroom, using the sob story that his school couldn't afford them. So he created an alter ego, but it was just his own name. Yeah, that's really fucking stupid to just, like, add a little thing on the front of your name. And I, I th- honestly, honestly, I think it was a little, I think it was, like, arrogance. Like, because it wasn't that he wanted, because, you know, if you were trying to create an alias and get things discreetly, you would just be like, oh, my name is Professor Arnold Scherlenberger or something like that. Like, Yeah, or Professor Spavid Spawn. Or some, some stupid shit like that that would just be so stupid and nobody would ever buy it. Yeah, no one. But everybody bought Professor David Yeah, Hahn. but I, th- I think it was like him thinking like in his mind, like this isn't just a alter ego. Like this is me. I'm Professor David Hahn. I'm going to be a great scientist someday. Like I'm just, I'm just like, it's the Mal- Malachi Love Robinson thing where it's like I don't want to go through all of that schooling. I just am a doctor. If I just say I'm a doctor, I'm a doctor. And he's kind of in this. In some ways, he, you know, David Hahn is like the mirror image of that. In that he actually does have the this knowledge, but it's completely divorced of a central moral core or any other knowledge. So it's this weird, like innocence fueled homicidal near homicidal mania yeah and also very similar to the point where i feel like really the only difference between the two is that like what alexander love robinson or mal why do i always say alexander love robinson i always say that for some reason malachi love robinson uh 
Malachi Rove Robinson, the things he were do- was doing were like very seriously illegal. Like it was fraud and like medical malpractice. Or I guess maybe you can't pr- commit medical malpractice unless you're actually a doctor. But it was like it was like fraud. And so he very directly got in trouble for it. Whereas with David Hahn, like technically him have have possessing these materials was illegal in that they're tightly regulated and you have to have licenses and a, a, a normal person can't just have them. But it wasn't like I'm scamming people or like I'm committing fraud. So may, like it, but it was very similar. Otherwise, I think I think maybe the reason why David Hahn didn't really get in trouble for it was just because it wasn't like directly. Well, yeah, because he didn't steal his godmother's credit card and buy a Lamborghini or whatever the fuck Malachi Love Robinson did. Do you think do you think when would you think when when people finally show up and like, you know, the cops find it, he has this nuclear reactor. <laughs> it's this it's a shot for shot remake of Malachi Love Robinson eating that little salad on his lunch break <laughs> and being like, I have to go. I have to go. I, I have a very important meeting to get to. Like he just says exactly what Malachi Love Robinson said. For for the joke, I'm gonna say yes, absolutely. But here's the difference. We saw that footage. Unfortunately, there's no footage of David Hahn, which is a shame. But we saw that footage. Malachi Love Robinson is not a charismatic person, and he is bad at talking, and he's a horrible liar. David Hahn, at least according to just what he was able to do, was like the world's greatest con man. But it's funny because the con does normally a con man is it's a confidence man. You're putting your confidence in someone else and they're taking usually financial rewards from you. David Hahn just wants to build a nuclear bomb, not even to see the world burn, but just to do it. Just like for the pure, pure platonic ambition of like, could I do this this thing? Can I climb Mount Everest? Yeah, like this book describes that this will happen if you do it right can i do it right not everybody bought these letters because well david had the spelling ability of a third grader and they were clearly written by a child but because he more than made up for his inability to spell words correctly with his genuine knowledge of chemistry and nuclear physics it was enough to fool a handful of people and david was able to score some of the materials he was looking for he also used these letters to ask for advanced reading materials the kind that would be hard to come by at a local library And because of this, he was once sent a pamphlet by the American Nuclear Society that explained that thorium, a radioactive element, could be harvested from the mantles of certain gas-powered lanterns. Another pro tip to file away for a later date. He harvested polonium from a bunch of electrostatic brushes he bought from the mall. During a trip to summer camp, while everyone was out of their cabins, he snuck into each of them and stole the smoke detectors so that he could harvest americium. He also lifted a bunch of gas lanterns for the purpose of harvesting thorium from them. Dude was basically running the nerdiest heist of all time. With his smoke detectors and gas lanterns back home, he called up various companies trying to find out where he could harvest the radioactive materials from. He was told that each detector and lantern only contained an extremely small amount of the materials. The handful he had stolen would not be remotely enough for him to do anything significant with. He was going to have to get more. First, he went around to a bunch of camping and military surplus stores and bought as many gas lanterns as he could get his hands on. Then he found out about another surplus vendor that was willing to sell broken and defective smoke detectors in bulk for cheap, and he also bought up as many of those as he could. David, or Professor David Hahn, also convinced another company to send him what would end up becoming his pride and joy, his very own Geiger counter, which his scoutmaster had taught him how to use. 
From that moment on, David kept the counter mounted on the dashboard of his car and took it wherever he went. And what did David's father, Ken, think of all this? With dozens of letters flooding in from government organizations and huge boxes of strange surplus supplies showing up on their doorstep and David running around town strapped with a Geiger counter? Well, David had the perfect excuse and the thing that would immediately set Ken's mind at ease. It was all part of his merit badge. He was just working extra hard to become an Eagle Scout, of course. So what now? David had collected a sizable chunk of the elements on the periodic table. He'd figured out a good groove for conducting his experiments without getting into too much trouble with his parents. And his nuclear pursuits were much less flashy and noticeable to the outside world because there weren't as many loud explosions and smoke involved. So where would he go from here? He didn't exactly have a goal. He just loved chemicals and figuring out how they worked. But what was his mission? The thing that would propel him to the level of scientific greatness experienced by his heroes, the Curies? Well, he had no clue. He was literally just winging it and following the dopamine. That was until one day he was flipping through one of his father's textbooks and stumbled across something called a breeder reactor. The breeder is a type of nuclear reactor that can generate more nuclear fuel than it consumes, which would essentially be an unlimited power source. It could in theory solve every problem in the world and set us into a post-scarcity utopia. Self-generating, unlimited, clean nuclear energy. Bye-bye world hunger, energy crisis, climate change, and super high power bills. Namely, thorium-232, which he could get by burning gas lantern mantles to ash and synthesizing into uranium-238. And neutrons, which he could get by combining americium-241 from smoke detectors and aluminum. Why hadn't anyone done this before? Was David really the first one to attempt to build one of these miracle machines? He'd be world famous. A hero. David had no idea that breeder reactors, at least the self-perpetuating kind, were essentially science fiction, a theoretical concept that had never been successfully recreated in the real world. In fact, there were three historically famous attempts at building large-scale breeder reactors. The Clinch River Breeder Reactor in Tennessee, which was built in the early 1970s by the U.S. government and then shut down in 1983 after showing no results. The Enrico Fermi Atomic Power Plant, which was built in the late 50s and suffered a partial meltdown that almost caused a catastrophic explosion in the late 60s. And the accident on Three Mile Island, another partial nuclear meltdown that released dangerous radioactive materials into the environment in 1979, rendering the entire island uninhabitable and helping to foment anti-nuclear sentiment in the United States. The big problem with breeder reactors is the massive amount of coolant needed to sustain them, which contains pure sodium. The coolant is notoriously difficult to contain and keep away from the air, and so the risk of coolant exposure and nuclear meltdown is almost too large to consider them viable in the real world. This is really just emblematic of the fact that, like, you have somebody who is smart enough and dedicated enough to, at the age of 14, 15, 16, learn about all of these advanced concepts in nuclear physics and understand how these chemicals and these elements interact and how they need to be mixed and how you can build certain things using them. And he's conducted all of these like relatively successful little experiments and also figured out how to procure all these materials in this relatively ingenious way and fool these adults and trick people into sending them things for free or selling them things that they shouldn't be selling them. To have this level of intelligence and sort of skill and determination in this one like specific area, but right next to it compartmentalized is this profound naivete to the point where he just thinks this thing that is not real. It's a, it's a, it's a theoretical concept that 
can't actually exist in the real world is just number one, something that's possible. And number two, just thinks that like nobody ever thought to do it before. Like in his mind, he's like, why hasn't anyone built one of these perpetual energy machines? Seems like you seems like we could like change the world. And it's just built off of this intense ignorance and like like childhood naive naivete. I think that's something a lot of engineers have, though. You know, like I I've known a considerable amount of engineers because my my dad is an aerospace engineer. And he's a fucking idiot. (laughs) No, 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 no. I don't I don't mean it that way. I just mean that sometimes you lose sight of the forest for the trees and you become so uh so detail oriented about you know these minute computational or mechanical issues that you're trying to solve that you forget about like mundane logistical things and you know sometimes i've without going into detail i've had conversations com- uh, telling me about the projects they're working on and i am a complete novice i don't know anything about any of these worlds and yet sometimes i find myself being like well if you're sucking air into a giant vent, shouldn't there be some sort of screen to keep like leaves from going in there? <laughs> and they're like, oh, fuck, I didn't think of that. You know, like that level of kind of like sometimes you just don't you're not thinking you're you're so concentrated on making the theoretical aspects of it function that you're not worried about the pragmat the pragmatist side of things. To me, that that same level of innocence or kind of scope creep overwhelming you or however you want to phrase it seems very similar to what David Hahn has here where he's kind of like well yeah obviously I'm the smartest human being on earth I can't spell like above a third grade level but obviously I'm thinking of all of these things that no one else has thought of before which ironically is true he was inventing like the suntan lotion thing and like other things that nobody else had done before it's so weird to me that that Ken his father is not like Bro, we gotta, we gotta get you in some kind of program. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta use this for good. We gotta put this obsession somewhere where people aren't going to die. And it's like what you're talking about. We talked about that in the MK Ultra episode as well, right? Because we're you know we're watching that one scientist who was talking about how like you know didn't you think that maybe this thing you were working on could have been used to like for really evil shit like used to like drug people and force them to tell you things. And he was just like, huh, I didn't know. I never thought about that. Like he just, it just like, it didn't, it didn't even seem, uh, it didn't even seem particularly uh, malicious. It just seemed like he just, it genuinely never occurred to him. He just like lacked the, 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 he, he lacked a certain like logistical uh, thinking that caused him to be able to, act completely a or immorally in a vacuum. And it's also, I think the big, like just really, that's kind of the thing that I really want to talk about or get across in this entire episode is, is what you just said, which is we've talked about this as well before, where it's like this thing that you're trying to do is impossible and you don't know it. You have no idea that what you're trying to do is impossible, but that's how, Shit happens all the time. People do things that are impossible, not realizing that they're impossible, and then they fucking figure it out and they do it. Like that's that's literally that happens. And we've talked about this before. And it's like, on one hand, you want to be like, you fucking idiot. Like you you don't realize this is not real. You can't do this. 
But then like that's that's literally you're being the person in the movie who's like, you'll never do this, you fucking idiot. You'll and you're going to prove me wrong and it'll be this huge win in in the third act of this movie. Um, So when you sit here and be like, well, David was trying to do this thing and he was a 15 year old kid and of course he couldn't do it. He's it was impossible. And he's also a child and people have tried to do this before. Like, so what? That's how shit gets done. But because of this very specific situation that he was in where there was just nobody paying attention tragically that it was impossible because like you said maybe he wasn't going to be able to build a breeder reactor in his backyard that worked and solved our energy crisis as a 15 year old boy or 16 year old boy but maybe if he was trying to do that and then his father found out and then was like, hey, let's not do that, but let's get you talking to this person because I have connections. I'm an engineer working in, you know, Motor City. I have all these people I know. I can get you to talk to this person. I can get you to talk to this person. And then eventually, maybe maybe right now, you and I are just like floating on like energy and we're just like and we're just like celestial beings because David Hahn solved the energy crisis in the 90s or something like that yeah i'm a i'm a i have to pay my hontricity bill uh when we get off this recording session yeah maybe that's maybe that's the world we're living in right now if 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 somebody had just been like hey 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 buddy you want to go into a fucking after school program yeah (laughs) but david didn't know any of this because anytime he ever started to come across anything even remotely negative about nuclear energy in his reading he just avoided it He had zero conception of any of the risks. All he needed was enough uranium to cause a chain reaction by passing neutrons through it with a neutron gun. Easy peasy, melting guy from the end of Robocop Squeezy. And keep in mind that if even one single adult had just at any point during all of this said, Hey, what you doing, bud? Maybe this all could have been prevented. Maybe we'd all know the name Professor David Hahn, not as a fake alias used to scam government organizations out of their radioactive materials, but as the name of one of the greatest minds in history. But no, David was free to build his breeder reactor in secret. His chosen site for the build? The potting shed, which he christened the Big D nuclear power plant. I love this. I love this recurring Big D motif. I love this Big D nuclear power plant, Big D lawn mowing service, Big D I'm accidentally going to cause a nuclear reaction and murder everyone I love. Big D. This <laughs> is the Big D, man. It's, the big it's, D. Such, it's such like a dorky name. It's like not not cool at all. But unlike real nuclear power plants where employees are supplied with masks, protective eyewear, special suits, and handle nuclear materials contained in lead-lined rooms, David was just going to raw dog this reactor with no protection other than a lead apron he was able to procure during one of his Professor David Hahn scams and had already been worn with holes from his past experiments and a single sheet of lead he propped up on his table between him and the materials. But David needed more help. So Professor David Hahn wrote into the Department of Energy and started up a correspondence with Donald Herb, their director of isotope production and distribution. And to be clear, he wrote into the Department of Energy, a.k.a. the department of the government that QAnon works in, because he claims to have level Q clearance, which is only a thing in the Department of Energy. So maybe maybe QAnon helped David 
and sent him all these materials. <laughs> He's like, I'm star, I'm kickstarting the revolution. He hit the mother load. Herb gave him a list of isotopes that could sustain a chain reaction, explained how to purify thorium dioxide, which was what was contained in the gas lantern mantles, into pure thorium, which could be much more effective at being synthesized into uranium, and informed him that combining beryllium and radium would produce stronger neutrons than americium and aluminum. He also told him that owning enough of these elements to build a working neutron gun is highly illegal, and if the Nuclear Regulatory Commission got wind of it, David would be shut down in an instant. David, who used to go around bragging about his experiments as often as he could, taking traces of radioactive materials in his Geiger counter to school to freak out other kids, decided to be much more top secret about his breeder reactor moving forward. He would work under cover of night and tell no one what he was doing, not even Heather. So David finally set to work. In order to make his neutron gun, he took a large block of lead and scooped out a large hole in it with a chisel. Then he sanded the hole smooth. This is where the alpha emitter, the combination of beryllium and radium, or aluminum and americium, would be contained. Then he poked a hole through the lead block with a needle. This is where the neutrons would be fired out of the alpha emitter core. Now he just needed to get the beryllium and radium. However, after sending out some letters and making some calls as Professor David Hahn, David quickly discovered that beryllium is tightly regulated by the EPA and no chemical supply company was willing to sell it to him. The reason being that it was extremely dangerous to handle and inhaling its dust caused cancer. So after a while of banging his head against letter writing and phone calls, he settled for just using simple strips of aluminum. Now to get some radium. At first it seemed like it would be much easier. He just needed to find a bunch of antique clocks and harvest the radium paint used to apply the numbers to the clock face. David started hunting around every single garage sale and antique shop he could find. He went through the basements and attics of friends and family. After several weeks, he had a stack of radium clocks and set about the tedious job of chipping off the paint. He sat for an entire weekend in his mom's backyard, chugging lemonade and chipping paint flakes off the clocks. After two days, he gathered up the spoils of his labor and realized one thing. This was nowhere near enough radium for his neutron gun. He'd need hundreds more clocks, weeks more chiseling. This wasn't going to work. For a while, he pursued possibly using polonium, the radioactive material he'd harvested from electrostatic brushes, as his alpha emitter. But after scanning the polonium with his Geiger counter, he discovered it wasn't nearly radioactive enough to produce fission, probably because polonium has a radioactive half-life of only 138 days. So it was back to americium as his main alpha emitter. But he was in the same boat as with the radium. He could only harvest tiny amounts of americium from smoke detectors, and he'd need hundreds of them to get enough of the material for his neutron gun. And while smoke detectors were way more plentiful than antique clocks, he couldn't afford to buy enough. Then, as luck would have it, David discovered that a local company was selling water-damaged products, including smoke detectors, for a fraction of their original price. He bought a dozen of them, but it still wasn't enough. He then learned that certain companies were selling expired smoke detectors for cheap, called them up, and convinced one of them to sell him a hundred for a dollar apiece. And why were boxes of hundreds of smoke detectors showing up on the doorstep of the Han household, Ken asked? Eagle Scout Project, of course. This is like the the montage from Goodfellas, where they're just like fucking cooking Italian food and getting increasingly more neurotic and, and like paranoid and doing lines of cocaine and like conducting like mob deals and shit. Like he's just like he's just like fucking amassing his his stockpile. And Ken is just like sitting on the couch being like, oh. Another five boxes of smoke detectors. What? Uh, hey, David, what, what's going on here? You're not doing one of those little crazy things again, are you? No, Dad, it's for the Eagle Scout. Okay. 
click, click, click. Like, I, I, it, it feels like gross negligence. Like, it feels like he should have been, like, I don't know what the step down from like almost manslaughter is, but like, he feels culpable. Like, the dude had sodium, and then he was just like, okay, you're ordering all of this shit to the house, staying up all hours of the night working on science projects. That's fine. Like, we know, you know what he does. You know what he's into. This is your fault. It's not David. It's like a compulsion. He can't help himself. He's obsessed. You, as the adult, the parent, it is, it's, it's objectively his fault. Like, this is crazy. Especially if David had, you know, some, if he had some kind of condition or something like that. I don't OCD, ADHD. I don't, I don't know what it, I don't know what it would be. There's a lot of different ways you could like correlate it, but especially if, if he, if he had something like that or PTSD from the trauma of his childhood, his mom and all that stuff. And yeah, like th- this isn't just like an unattentive parent or somebody who just like, wasn't looking into, this was like somebody who was like actively anno- ignoring, like this is almost the equivalent of those several stories that cropped up in like the 2000s where parents would get like addicted to playing World of Warcraft and they would just like let their child starve to death. So after a while, David had everything he needed to make a working neutron gun. Did he get exactly the ingredients for the best possible one? No, but it didn't matter. It was time to make history. One day while Ken and Kathy were at work, David stripped the americium out of all of the smoke detectors, welded it all together, and combined it with the strips of aluminum to create his finished alpha emitter. He was ready to test his neutron gun. The only problem was that he had no instruments to measure if the neutron gun actually worked. Neutrons don't emit any particles that can be detected by a Geiger counter. But then he remembered reading that if a piece of paraffin is hit with neutrons, it produces protons that can be detected by a Geiger counter. So with his neutron gun, his alpha emitter, and some paraffin, he headed to the potting shed. Donning his threadbare lead apron, he loaded the alpha emitter into the neutron gun and pointed its needle-sized hole at the paraffin. And it worked. The Geiger counter started clicking. He had actually produced neutrons. Now he just needed the final element, something fissionable that could produce radioactive fuel and complete his working breeder reactor that would make him the youngest world-famous scientist ever. He needed uranium, but he also didn't have nearly enough gas lantern mantles to harvest enough thorium to synthesize it. This was just an endless fetch quest of increasingly impossible tasks. So a few days after his 17th birthday, he started spending every weekend driving across hundreds of miles of Upper Michigan. This was a shortcut to getting the uranium without having to derive it from thorium. The region had been a huge site for mineral mining, so it wasn't a question of if there was enough uranium just lying around, but whether or not David could stumble upon enough on his random drives. After months of this, David had turned up empty-handed. He decided to go another route and discovered two companies in the Czech Republic who sold samples of uranium-rich rock to universities and museums. He wrote to both, posing as Professor David Hahn, and got one of them to bite. For $140, they agreed to mail him a brick of pitch blend containing uranium ore. The other company also sent a smaller sample as a courtesy. I want to repeat the point that I made last episode, which is this listening to this story, listening to this episode doesn't convey the scope of the patience and the waiting that is happening in this in t- with David's life like he is he is like driving through the desert stopping every couple of miles and just like digging in the dirt and trying to find rocks and scanning them with his Geiger counter and coming up empty-handed 
and moving to another location and doing it over again. He's like writing letters to companies four weeks to get to them. And then it takes them another four weeks for the response to get back. And then it takes another eight weeks for the thing that they decided to send him to get to him. And he's just like, this is just ha- he's like spinning all these plates and keeping track of all of this stuff mentally and psychologically as he's just like drifting through his normal life outside of this. On one level, it feels very similar to the this kind of archetypical story that we are both attracted to of someone lost in their own creative ambition. It feels kind of like a Werner Herzog spending 10 years making movies in the Amazon jungle and refusing to do, you know, to refusing to pull a uh, pretend to pull a a boat over a mountain in the Amazon jungle. He wanted to literally do it and shoot the movie as they were doing it. You know, it feels similar to, um, you know, these kind of uh, even a Henry Darger spending 20 years writing a novel that just never ends or or uh, countless people who've become enraptured by a vision of a creative idea that needs to be fulfilled. And then they've dedicated decades of their life to doing it. And it's deeply admirable and also like kind of questionable on one level. And this story feels like all of those stories rolled into one then made infinitely more depressing and super dangerous. <laughs> yeah, and it's and it's it's interesting how like we'll talk about this later on, but a lot of this information comes from a book that was written about David by an author or a journalist named uh, Ken Silverstein and the way he wrote this book was by conducting in-depth interviews with like as many people involved with the situation as he could track down that were still alive. So, you know, conducting long interviews with Ken and Kathy and Kathy's father that gave him the golden book and these teachers and the people from the EPA that we'll learn about later on. And, um, you know, basically everybody except for his mom who was dead, uh, as, as we'll get to eventually. It's interesting to hear the way they talk about David and these things that he was doing especially in light of the fact that the book was published prior to the very tragic ending to this story. The book was written before the the ultimate thing in the story happened that makes it all the more sad. Um, so it's almost this penultimate truth about David's story. So it's even more kind of tragic to hear these interview, uh, these, these interviews in that context, because and I think it's I think it's people can trying to tell themselves a narrative, right? But all these people, they all look back on this. Like the story is not framed in a really tragic way of like, oh, we ignored him, we let this go on. It's framed in a way of like, that David, he was always up to some kooky stuff. I didn't know what the heck he was talking about. Like that's that's the tone of every single person that's interviewed. It's just like yeah, I didn't know what he was doing. That was he was just always up to some kind of zaniness. And it's like them actively trying to create a permission structure to not feel horribly guilty for causing this kid's downfall through negligence in real time as they're being interviewed for this book. So you have to like take everything that they say with a grain of salt because they're framing everything as if it was just like some kooky childhood hijinks, but like David was just a little bit more special than normal. I, yeah, I have nothing to say other than it's just it's unthinkable and it's it's wild how every social every social kind of safety net failed him. Even when he was in situations where he had a family and had school and had friends, they all just 
just, everything just fucking like collapsed under the weight of his obsession and complete disinterest in the social contract. Yeah, and then it was like this this all happened through the path of least resistance where everybody involved was just like, this is kind of weird. I don't really understand it. And I just don't even want to go there. I don't even want to, I'm not like one, one time whenever I was working at borders, I might've told the story on the show before to illustrate another point. But one time there was this, there was this kid who used to come into the, um, the store all the time. He was like a regular there and he had some, some kind of mental, mental handicap. I don't know what it was, but he, he was, uh, he would come in with a group of people from a home and he was, you know, he clearly had some kind of neurological issue. I don't, I don't know what it was though. And one time I walked into the back area where it was like this, the sex, area where they had like the Kama Sutra and like books on sex and like erotic fiction and things like that. And I walked back there and I walked up to him sitting, holding one of the Kama Sutra books and jerking off. And I just, I just stopped. And I, once again, I'm not advocating this. I'm not saying this was the, the right thing to do. I'm not, I'm not the hero in this story, but I just backed away and was like, somebody else will find this, and somebody else will deal with this, and I just left. And that's what everybody that's what everybody is do, has done to David. Uh, <laughs> one time when I was working at a Borders, <laughs> when I was working at a Borders, we had this back corner, which was kind of like discounted or or like used books or whatever. And uh, <laughs> I can't believe I'm going to tell this. <laughs> So I, I was working at Borders and I had to go put a bunch of books back there and it was this kind of like weird catty corner. So I'm like kneeling down, putting books on a bottom shelf, but the, the shelving units were like you could see through the slats, you know, they weren't like a wall and then shelves on one side and shelves on the other. It was like double long shelving unit. So when you're when you were there, you could like see over the tops of the books what was happening on the other side. I'm sure you can see where this is going. I knelt down because I was shelving books there. <laughs> I looked, I glanced through that little like gap where the tops of the books and the bottom of the, and, the, and the top of the shelf. And there was just a fucking dick just being stroked just like right there. And I like audibly went like, the fuck? And then the, the person who was an older man like, put it away and started speed walking out of there. And I was just like, <laughs> I just like stood up and was just like, that dude was fucking jerking off. <laughs> the key differences in our stories are number one, I said nothing. I was like somebody, this is somebody else's find. This is somebody else's discovery. I was never here. I'm a ghost. I'm a phantom. And the other key difference is, he knew I was there. Like, I caught him. It wasn't like he didn't see me, and I backed away. He just, he just kept doing it. Just continuing, baby. Just continuing. But see, that, that, that's the thing. Is like, if if David Hahn had been my son, like the same thing would have happened over again. 
if if David's ha- if David Hahn had been your son, you would have taken him to Borders and made him watch that guy jerk off. But if he had been your son, you would have been like, "What the fuck? This guy's making nuclear reactors over here." <laughs> yeah, I, I absolutely would have. Yes, yes. In the potting shed, David used a technique combining nitric acid and sulfuric acid to try and isolate the uranium ore from the pitch blend. However, he didn't have a chemical strainer and instead tried to use a coffee filter, but the uranium couldn't pass through and the separation failed. After all that work getting those samples from overseas, the uranium was ruined. He still had nothing to generate the nuclear fuel for his breeder reactor. But here's the thing. Since David never read any of the negative stuff about nuclear energy, he had no idea that, in reality, what he was actually attempting to do was not to create a breeder reactor to produce endless clean energy, If he had successfully produced uranium through this method and fired his neutron gun through it, he would have produced plutonium, the most deadly substance on Earth. And he almost certainly would have died, and maybe taken out half his neighborhood with him. So, fortunately for himself and everyone, he had to scrap his plans to use uranium ore and go back to the drawing board. And to be clear, when I say that he could have, like, he would have died and taken out half of his neighborhood, I don't mean that there would have been an explosion, but, like, the odds of him developing cancer from what he was doing were probably pretty high, but the odds of him developing cancer and dying a horrible death within five years after being exposed to plutonium was like a hundred percent. Like he absolutely would have, and probably other people in his neighborhood would have also been exposed and gotten inoperable cancer and died. Man, that's so fucking dark. Like what he was trying to make was basically the stuff that was in the dirt during the filming of that Genghis Khan movie that John Wayne was in, where like everybody involved in the production died of cancer within like 15 years. Like he was trying to make that stuff, basically. But he was going to need a lot more than what was contained in the existing gas lantern mantles he was able to scrounge together. And he also couldn't afford to buy more lanterns at retail value. Nor did he think he could reasonably convince anybody to give Professor David Hahn hundreds of the things. So what he did instead was approach and befriend a stockroom employee at a camping supply store and then start paying him to unload hundreds of just the replacement thorium dioxide coated mantles they kept in the back into his car. And, you know, the the thing what I keep returning to of like, I wish I could just literally hear the conversations that were unfolding during these stories is because it's it's kind of an oxymoron or it's it's kind of a it's kind of a not an oxymoron but it's it's a it's a paradox or like a contradiction because we're talking about this fact that David was so isolated David you know had nobody cared about him who showed interest in him he was completely isolated and alone and in a vacuum all these things happened and yet it seemed like he was very charismatic because he was just he would just be like and almost to like maybe like a sociopathic level because he would just be like, I need these things. I will befriend one of the employees and uh, get him into my confidence and then convince him to give me all these things. And then once I'm done, I'll just stop talking to him and and move on to my next thing. Like, it, like he didn't seem like he was socially awkward. It seemed like he was like perfectly capable to a calculated degree of befriending people, tricking people, putting people at ease and making people think that there was nothing wrong. Imagine what this guy could have done if he put his mind to something like beneficial to mankind. Fuck, he probably could have built a nuclear. Oh, wait. <laughs> yeah. 
but it, it, did, it didn't quite go that way. It didn't, it didn't quite go in that utopian direction, as we're going to find out. After David's friend had embezzled enough of these mantles for him, he spent days unwrapping them and melting them down to ash with a blowtorch in the potting shed. Then he collected the ash in several milk jugs and kept it in his room in Clinton Township. He still wasn't quite there. He needed to purify the thorium dioxide into pure thorium before it could be fissionable. David had read in one of his father's textbooks that lithium could be used to purify thorium. Essentially, the lithium is able to absorb certain compounds just by touching them. And when it absorbs the compound, it passes its lithium into the compound it's touching. So basically, David could get the thorium dioxide ash and the lithium to switch bodies. The lithium would absorb the thorium in its pure form, and the lithium would transfer over into the ash, leaving just the pure thorium by itself to be used in the breeder reactor. So he was, tra- he was trying to Freaky Friday some, some radioactive shit. He was trying to, he was trying to trading places it. He was trying to, uh, he was trying to, shit, what's that slasher movie with Vince Vaughn where it's Freaky Friday, but horror? I can't think of the title of that movie now. Whatever, that movie. He's trying to do that movie. He was, he was, he was, uh, the, the thorium was Judge Reinhold and the, and the lithium was Fred Savage. He was trying to face off, bro. Yeah, he's trying to face off. For, yeah, 100%. But now where would he get lithium? He was running low on funds and had just about tapped out all his personal connections, companies he'd fooled with Professor David Hahn, and other random schemes he'd been pulling for years. Well, at the time in the early 90s, lithium batteries were starting to become more commonly available as they were used for portable electronic devices like cell phones and laptop computers. And so David just started straight up shoplifting them from stores. He was past the Rubicon at this point. Nothing as trivial as not having money or access to lithium was going to stand in the way of him executing his master plan. So he just stole that shit. And this is like, this is such a great like illustration of this idea of like juvenile delinquents and like criminal activity stemming from like systemic failures of the system that you're in because it like, the idea that you just like want to steal stuff because you like stealing stuff or whatever, or you just like you'd rather steal something than earn the money to pay for it, or these like these like bullshit ideals about like why people steal and the fact that it's like makes them morally bad people or whatever. David didn't want to steal things. He had no interest in theft. He was just like he was so obsessed with this thing and needed it to happen. And as a kid, he's just like, well, I'm at the end of my rope. I got no other options. I just got to steal this shit so I can finish this. And because there was no one around to care, he did it. Imagine apply, you know, this is just him trying to build a nuclear reactor, apply this to like being hungry, you know? Yeah. By any means necessary, I will build this nuke in the back of my fucking garage. (laughs) He wasn't going to waste his precious thorium ash on a failed experiment this time, though. First, he tried out the experiment on some potassium nitrate. He removed the lithium strips from the batteries and combined them with the potassium nitrate in a foil ball. After a while, the foil ball heated up and produced a plume of smoke. It worked, and now it was time to try it for real. He took more of the lithium strips and combined them in a foil ball with a thorium dioxide ash. After waiting for a while, David removed the lithium strips from the foil and tested them with his Geiger counter. It started chirping away madly. He had done it. The strips were now purified thorium. He now had all of the elements ready to build his breeder reactor for real and see if he had the stuff to become the next great scientist. In fact, the thorium he had absorbed into the strips of lithium was 9,000 times more pure than what occurs in nature and 170 times more pure than is legal for any person to possess. But things weren't going to go exactly the way David planned them. 
not by a long shot. So how how we doing, Dave? How are we doing in the in the the ballad of 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 David Hahn? It's sad. It's sad. I don't I don't like it. <laughs> I just feel bad for him, man. I'm I don't know. It's uh you know what it makes me want to do? It makes me want to plug some shit. That's kind of the joke I was gonna you 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 got to the joke before I did. <laughs> you can buy my comics like Forest Hills Bootleg Society and Seven's Reckoning, whatever books are sold, or if you want my self-published books, you can find them at heydavebaker.com. Also, isn't it really sad how he like is almost murdering all these people due to this new these nuclear tests he's compulsively doing in his garage? <laughs> Did you just actually do all of your plugs within the context of a hypothetical scenario of you doing your plugs? No, of course not. Spandrew, where uh, where on the internet can people find you? Well, you can't find me on the internet because I don't use social media. But if you want to pay your respects to the dear beloved Papa Pricey, you can go to his website, dapricerights.com, or you can get his book, Deadbolt AI Private Eye. It's a a cyberpunk neo noir sci fi comic about a robot detective solving crimes in the future city. Um, you can also uh, go to our website, uh, deepcutspod.com. And if you click on the shop, you can get some hats or some t shirts or fanny packs or baby onesies, coffee mugs, all kinds of stuff with some cool deep cuts graphics on them. Uh, we got a bunch of different designs. Check them out. Deepcutspod.com. Click on the shop. Um, we also have a uh, Mystery Treehouse Junior Sleuth patch. So if you yourself want to become a junior sleuth in the Mystery Treehouse Detective Agency or the Mystery Treehouse Investigation Agency, I don't know, man. I'm still relatively new. Uh, you can get that. It's a shoulder patch. So you can adorn onto your favorite jacket to prove that you are a junior sleuth. Um, you can follow us on social media. If you can uh, go to Facebook and search Deep Cuts Podcast, you can check out our page. You can also join our Facebook group, the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group, where we talk about the show, make memes. There's a cool little community there. You can join our Discord server, bit.ly.com slash Discord, where we also have another cool community where we talk about the show, make memes, play games, so on and so forth. Um, you can follow us on other socials like uh, Instagram at Deep Cuts Pod, TikTok at Mystery Treehouse. And leave us a review. Go to, go to, if you if you use iTunes or Apple Podcasts, go give us a five star review. Help us out. It really it, it helps to for our show to get shown algorithmically. So uh, give us a, drop us a rating and a review. And now let's get back to the show. Act four: Quaid, stop the reactor. By this point, outside of David's obsessive quest to build a working breeder reactor, his life was basically in shambles. He was completely isolated from his dad, stepmom, and stepsister. His mom's alcoholism and mental illness had progressed to the point where, on a near-daily basis, she'd go through the same cycle of getting into a loud, violent fight with Michael, leaving to stay with her mother, getting into a fight with her mother, and sleeping in her car, leaving David to be alone at her house whenever he stayed there. He was utterly failing in school, not even bothering to receive the same good marks in science and chemistry that had been his one academic saving grace before. And worst of all, it seemed that Heather had finally been pushed too far and was contemplating her relationship with him. David was hardly ever available for her anymore, spending all of his waking hours on his reactor. And when they did get together, Heather was less and less interested in hearing anything about what David got up to in his spare time. 
even the oblivious David started noticing that something was wrong. Somewhere in the back of his mind, he knew he was losing her, but he was already in too deep to do anything about it. He'd ride this thing all the way to the end, no matter what happened, even if it meant losing Heather. In fact, the only part of his life that was actually thriving was his time in the Scouts. At this point, he had handily earned all 21 of the merit badges he needed to earn Eagle Scout status. All that was left to do was the final project that helped his community. David's project was designing a new patio area for the local public library, the one he'd probably spent hundreds if not thousands of hours at in the last decade researching his experiments. And since this 18-year-old boy was apparently one of the greatest, most smooth-talking confidence men of our time, or had just gotten really good at convincing people to do shit for him from his years of posing as Professor David Hahn, he convinced a local construction company to donate one ton of concrete to the project. And you might see this as kind of a breakthrough. David finally finding something constructive and non-dangerous to have passion for. Maybe he could go into construction or become a city planner. But for David, the entire thing was just a cover for his top secret project, so he could blame all of his weird activities and strange incoming packages on the Eagle Scout badge. It was all just a performance to him. Let's stop and talk about that for a second, because though this story, as we've talked about, is like a foil for the types of stories we tend to do, we haven't necessarily talked about kayfabe this whole time. But this is where we realize all of David's life outside of his experiments is the kayfabe. Yeah. David Hahn is the kayfabe. Professor David Hahn is the real person. <laughs> it is because it's it, it's it's number one to get like more modern with it. It's a it's it's neurodivergent masking. It's like he all he cares about are these are these experiments and doing this and everything outside of it is him just smiling and being like, yes, I'm a normal human being boy and I like going to school and eating breakfast and yes, I do want to play football with you, friend, who I love hanging out with. His whole life is just in the back of his mind like, I want to get home. I want to get home. I want to get in my lab. I want to get in my lab. I got to build this. I got to fucking do this thing. I got to like that's the that's the thing going on in the back of his mind at all times. And everything is a performance to the point where, as you just said, Professor David Hahn is the real guy. And David Hahn is a kayfabe performance that he has to do in every other aspect of his life because nobody understands or cares yeah instead of jekyll and hyde it's citizen and professor or something you know it's like he he really does you know exactly what you're saying where it, you know there's a there's another wrestling term that's like what is it it's like lost in the gimmick you know when they they like basically they buy their own kayfabe you know and wrestlers start to believe the the, the gimmick you know they live they live the gimmick but then they hopefully know the difference between where they stop and where the character begins same thing for spies is a term called lost in the hall of mirrors i think uh which is the same thing where you lose who you are and what your relationship is to the people around you because all you can see are spies and deceit and lies everywhere and this is like the inverse of that where it's somebody who's so dedicated to their own internally mandated mission that they construct a house of lies and a uh, you know, a, a, a persona, a kayfabe persona, like we usually talk about to manifest that end result into existence. You just pull out your dick and start jerking off and you go, I was the guy in Borders! It was me. I wanted to tell you when you were telling that story and I lost the nerve, but it was me, baby, going full tubing. But then after all that time melting lantern mantles, haggling for smoke detectors and shoplifting lithium batteries, David had a random stroke of luck. 
he wandered into an antique shop one day and started moving his Geiger counter around the place, putting it up to several antique clocks. They all gave faint clicks, but nothing worth buying. Then, he went up to a particular clock and his counter started reading off the charts. He immediately bought the clock, took it home, opened it up, and discovered that inside of the clock, there was an entire full vial of sealed radium paint, likely something left inside of the clock so that the owner could touch up the numbers when they started to fade. What a um, thoughtful thing to do for that nice woman who died horribly two years later. David was now back in the radium game. He decided to scrap his entire old reactor. He was going to build a brand new, larger neutron gun and use this glorious cache of radium to generate more powerful neutrons. David was now back in the radium game. He decided to scrap his entire old reactor. He still needed to purify the radium, which he could do using some barium sulfate. But you couldn't just get barium sulfate from a store. However, it was used for taking x-rays at hospitals. So he donned his best scout uniform, went to a local hospital, and plied them with a story of an upstart scout trying to get his eagle badge and needing just a little barium sulfate for one of his projects. David mixed the barium with some of the radium paint and then strained it through an actual chemical strainer. And upon consulting his Geiger counter, he discovered that he had indeed separated out purified radium from the toxic slush he had produced. When David turned off the lights, the purified radium glowed pure and true. And as luck would have it, around this time, remember how David was trying to get his hands on beryllium metal to make his neutron gun, but it was impossible to get, so he settled for aluminum instead? Well, a friend who worked at a local community college was able to get his hands on some that had been sent to the school, and he gave it to David. David used a larger chunk of lead, the beryllium, and the purified radium to create a bigger, better, more powerful neutron gun. Now it was time to test the breeder reactor. He took his neutron gun, his purified thorium, and a bowl of his failed purified uranium just for good measure, and headed into the potting shed. He set down the thorium and the botched uranium next to each other, then took the neutron gun and pointed its needle-sized barrel hole directly at them. Then he covered the entire thing with his lead sheet and let it sit for hours while he patiently did other things in the house. After the hours went by, he went back out to the shed, consulted his Geiger counter, and it didn't work. Nothing. Neither the thorium or the uranium were any more radioactive. David was confused and disappointed. What had he done wrong? He followed all the literature exactly. So he cracked his knuckles and penned another letter as Professor David Hahn, writing his pen pal Herb, aka QAnon, from the DOE. And Herb did not disappoint. Hypothetically speaking, of course, Herb explained that the neutrons were moving too fast to actually absorb into the thorium and needed to be slowed down using a filter between the gun and the compound. He needed to create this filter out of tritium, another radioactive compound. And after doing some research, David discovered that it could be found in gun sites. So he bought one and used a coffee spoon to scrape out the waxy tritium from inside of it. However, he had no idea if the tritium would work or if it was even still functional and had no way to test it. That night as he went to bed, he took off his watch and accidentally left it on top of the coffee spoon he'd used to scrape out the tritium. Then, the next morning, he put the watch back on. And after several hours, he noticed a painful sensation under the watch. He took it off to find that he had gotten a bad radiation burn from the tritium residue. The stuff worked. So, once again, the dichotomy between how smart David Hahn is, how advanced he is at learning and applying advanced chemistry and nuclear physics, but also, like, he's just, like, fucking throwing around radioactive material in his bedroom. It's just like, oh, I'm going to scrape out this radioactive material with a spoon and just throw it on my nightstand and then put my watch on top of it. Like, he's a fucking hot mess. He's all over the place. He's got fucking, he's got fucking radiation particles 
in his underwear and shit. Like he's he's raw dogging it. Yeah, it kind of doesn't really make sense to me. I I know I said this before, but I I I just I don't really get the lack of personal safety protocols of like even just like from a self-preservation standpoint of like I got to be really careful with what I'm doing. This could be real dangerous. You know what I mean? Like it just doesn't it just doesn't feel like something a normal human being would do. Like if you wrote this, it'd be like no one would make this nuke this haphazardly ass backwards tripping over themselves because they wouldn't want to die. Yeah, but he was just like he just scooped he was scooped out some radioactive material with a spoon and then just threw it on his desk next to his next to his knickknacks and his his daily driver accessories, his his fucking uh EDC knife, which are some for some reason very popular now. He was going to need a lot more tritium, though, but he, once again, couldn't afford to just go buying dozens of these things willy-nilly, apparently had trouble connecting with any of the employees at any of the local gun stores, and maybe felt like shoplifting from a place that exclusively sells guns might be asking for trouble. So instead, what he did was go to one of these gun stores, convince them to let him borrow dozens of gun sites for a demonstration of them at his high school, The owners were apparently overjoyed at the prospect of someone introducing their entire impressionable student body to the wonders of guns and agreed. David took the sights home, removed the tritium, and returned them. So once again, like, David went to a gun shop and convinced them to let him just take dozens of their products for free just to go show them at his high school. That sounds like the scene, like, I imagine that as, like, the scene in the first Terminator where he's like, I need a news in nine millimeter, the the sawed off pump shotgun, and the you know uh, laser gun with the forty watt range. And the guy's like Dick Smith is like what 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 are you talking about forty watt range? We don't have that. And he goes okay, just give me all of these guns then goodbye. And he kills the guy and then leaves. I imagine it being like that where David's like I'll take these snipers and that sight and okay can I get some bullets and what are you gonna do with it? Oh just a demonstration, just a demonstration at my high school. And they were like, yes, here you go, son. However, the owner of the store quickly discovered that the sites didn't work anymore, freaked out, called David's parents, and Ken was forced to pay for all of them. And instead of, like, asking David what the hell he was doing with a bunch of gun sites, he just demanded that he pay him back, which David did in four installments. But it didn't matter anymore. He had the tritium and was ready to try his neutron gun again. So he set up the gun and pointed it at the thorium, this time with the tritium filter, and let it sit for days, checking every few hours to get a reading with his Geiger counter. And to his delight, this time it seemed that the thorium was actually absorbing the neutrons and becoming more and more radioactive. He had actually done it by himself. He could now move to the next phase of actually assembling a real working breeder reactor and making history. Normally, this is the time that you'd celebrate with friends and family, bask in the glory and brag about your accomplishments to anybody who would listen. But David had none of that. He was just in the potting shed, by himself. There was just one problem, though. The radiation levels kept growing. Soon, he was able to pick up huge spikes of radiation with his Geiger counter, even through the two-foot-thick concrete wall of the potting shed. He realized that if he just kept letting it go like this, it might end up irradiating his entire neighborhood. Or maybe the entire town. Who knows? He hadn't thought to build an off switch. He briefly attempted to build in a control rod to the neutron gun, a set of cobalt drill bits that could be placed in between the neutron gun and the thorium to absorb the neutrons without becoming irradiated. But it didn't work, and the thorium was now producing levels of radiation that David had never previously even fathomed of. 
he had to do something. Yeah, I mean, my first, other than what we've talked about with all of the kind of like personal kayfabe stuff and the, um, he's this weirdly charismatic person, apparently. Um, the other thing that kind of strikes me about this is the purely mechanical devoid of emotion processes of it um i can understand why someone would why someone would be obsessed with that you know what i mean like i know you said that early in the in the previous episode where you were kind of talking about like you know he was looking for a sense of control and he found that sense of control in mixing these two chemicals and then seeing a reaction and like I can understand why that would be alluring and and maybe even somewhat addicting because you you feel like a god you know you have all this power and this control and you have these these inanimate objects that are nothing and then you are the you know the arbiter of their fate you put them together and they become literal power yeah and also like when you do anything that's sort of like mechanical in nature like coding or building a machine that's supposed to do something and it's all based off sort of this mathematical equation that like essentially it's like it's almost like in in certain ways it's like the opposite of it's the opposite of like sort of creative expression where creative expression is just sort of this this vague sense of like oh you you have these good instincts and that mixed with skill and then you end up making this really great thing that nobody's ever thought of before. Whereas like building machines or coding, these are like, there is this set of instructions for how this is going to work. And the only thing holding you back from getting it to work is if you are like smart enough or skilled enough to execute these instructions. And in those situations, whenever you do that, whenever you write some code and it actually does the thing that you wanted it to do, you get this like rush of uh, and this is like that like magnified to a million because it's like it's that rush of putting together these mathematical equations and assembling things in a particular way and it working and realizing that you were smart enough or skilled enough to have done it correctly but it's like but it's like you're working at the literal subatomic level it's like the the DNA of the universe you know yeah uh which is really sad when you think about it as like a personal metaphor that he's like trying to make this energy that could solve all of the world's problems. And it's like his problems are the most human, you know, parents that don't love him, mental illness, a sense of abandonment, lack of a sense of purpose. Like those are fundamental human, you know, not that he's literally trying to make a nuke, uh, a nuclear reactor in order to solve those problems, but also, you know, he's not not. Which is which is a powerful that's powerful symbolism. It's fucking depressing, bro. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Um, I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. Now that David Hahn has finally built his makeshift breeder reactor, things are starting to take a turn. But the story is still not done. Up next is the race to dismantle the reactor before it irradiates his entire neighborhood. David's desperate attempt to hide what he's done from his family in the town, and eventually the EPA and the FBI coming to the Detroit suburbs to investigate David's laboratory. Find out the conclusion to the story next week in the final episode of the series, The Radioactive Boy Scout Part 3.
Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content. The incidental music for this episode was created by D. Catalano, whose music can be found at wekeepoddhours.bandcamp.com.